From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. On today's episode, we are bringing you something a little different. The following is a conversation between two researchers with extensive experience conducting and analyzing clinical trials. Dr. Elliot Antman, a cardiologist and the Associate Dean for Clinical and Translational Research at Harvard Medical School, and Dr. Brian Healy, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Primary Biostatistician for the Partners MS Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital, recently sat down to talk about clinical trials and the pivotal moment biomedical research is in now. Over the last century, there have been dramatic improvements in healthcare. What's the evidence for this? People are living longer. We have treatments for diseases that we just didn't have previously. And we understand the importance of prevention strategies to keep people healthy. About half of the dramatic improvements in health have come from the treatments that we use now for diseases, and about half come from prevention measures. A very important tool for us over the last 50 to 60 years has been the randomized controlled trial and sophisticated biostatistical approaches that provide predictions of health and disease, model building, so Brian, where are we with clinical trials today and how do you build models to help us predict who's likely to get disease or respond to treatments? So we actually are in an amazing moment in terms of clinical trials in that many years ago, all of the trials kind of followed the same rough framework where people were randomized to either treatment or placebo. We followed people over time and we tried to compare the two groups to assess whether or not there was a causal effect of the treatment on the outcome. We relied on the idea of randomization to allow for the two treatment groups to be exchangeable, meaning they were basically the same except for the treatment. This allowed relatively simple analyses <clears throat> to compare the two groups and to estimate the treatment effect. As time has gone on, people have found that this type of trial is great in certain scenarios, but it's turned out that it's a more challenging scenario nowadays when we have other treatments that are available or the sample size can't be as large or the sample size can be very, very large so that we can utilize the randomized controlled trial in different ways to answer different questions. But also what's happened is, is as time has gone on, people have always been trying to build prediction models to be able to help physicians uh, decide whether or not patients are likely to have some sort of event or to respond to a treatment. And the initial ideas in terms of these model building has often been using certain types of techniques called regression to allow ourselves to estimate the chance that somebody's going to have an event. These techniques got us to a really cool place because we were able to um, figure out a lot of important things, but it's probably not where we need to be as time goes forward. So let's think about what we've done to date. When we did the randomized trials that we've been talking about, we made an assumption that all the individuals with the disease that we were studying essentially looked the same. 
And we also assumed that they would respond to the treatments we were studying more or less to about the same extent. And we described the average response to treatments. And th such an imaginary individual doesn't really exist. Uh, so, so, Brian, how, how do we handle the uh, average response statement now and our statement about how certain or uncertain we are about the treatment effect we're observing? Yeah, so it's a really interesting idea in that the randomized controlled trial allows us to estimate a causal effect so that we can understand on average are people doing better on treatment versus um, placebo or standard of care, which is certainly an important first step in understanding the benefit of a new drug or new treatment of any kind. The challenges you're bringing up, which is really important, is that we don't actually know if everybody is going to have the same uh, amount of response or be as likely to respond to the treatment so that we are really only answering part of the question. Like we would really rather understand is person X going to respond to the treatment as opposed to on average across everybody would that happen. The, the cool idea that everybody has been assessing in randomized clinical trials up to now is that nearly every randomized control trial does look at specific subgroups to assess if the treatment effect is different in those subgroups. And this was a first step, again, in the direction of trying to understand more about this idea of is the treatment effect the same everywhere. But these analyses have been shown to have some benefit because they identify some uh, factors that may be related to the treatment response. But they're probably not enough. There's probably more that we might want to do. And there's more things that we want to measure, better ways to analyze, to hopefully get to a place where we really understand who's going to respond to which treatment and how much. So, Brian, you're alluding to the fact that we're at a very exciting, pivotal moment in biomedical research where things are literally changing almost every week in a very dramatic way. What's changed? Uh, we have a much more comprehensive understanding of genetics. It's been about a decade and a half uh, since we've had the completion of the Human Genome Project. So we now understand humans have between 20,000 and 25,000 genes. Uh, the HapMap Project has been completed. So we now have a catalog of individual variations in genetics. We also now have the electronic health record where we can store lots of information about individuals. We also have many wearable devices. We are in the midst of a digital revolution. So-called quantified self-movement has come upon us. And of course, individuals are much more engaged in their health, their health decision-making, understanding what particular treatments are the options, but this has profound implications for how we're going to handle all this. So let's talk a little bit about that, the technologies that we have, how networks of investigators are assembling, and what kind of computational approaches we might think about for the future. Yeah, it really is an exciting time to be somebody who's doing medical research, or e even more accurately for me, somebody who analyzes data to try to understand biomedical questions. Because at this moment, we have this unique opportunity that you were describing to really try to understand a much more varied number of questions because all of the things that we can incorporate into our analysis has grown dramatically. So you uh, listed off three 
kind of areas that are really exploding, and they bring with them specific challenges. So if you have some uh, a new technology that allows you to measure a large number of things on a large number or a small number of subjects, you have to figure out a way to um, store and then compile all that information to have it be analyzable. This is a great problem to have because if you didn't have the data, you couldn't utilize it to do any form of analysis. And we see this in all sorts of scenarios, not just in medicine anymore, where the ability to pull together a huge amount of information is making lots of things possible across lots of different areas. Once you have all that data, though, you kind of need to be able to figure out how to combine it and make a statement utilizing all that information. And this has led to a lot of advances in both statistical modeling as well as something called machine learning, which are different ways that people try to put together a large amount of information to answer an important clinical question. The best thing that we want to keep in mind is there's no magic um, approach that answers all questions perfectly. Rather, what we want to understand is we want to understand that there are many approaches that are being developed that could potentially be tailored to answering lots of interesting clinical questions as long as we understand what it is that we might need to collect, how we can store it, how we can make sure it's clean, which means how to make sure that we've accurately collected and have that information in the right form, and then how we want to apply some of these newer analytic techniques to allow ourselves to answer these questions. It's a really exciting, exciting time. So uh, everybody's been thinking about the implications of the changes we've been chatting about. Surely we're going to have a better understanding of biology, a better understanding of health, and of course, we hope that we're going to have better understandings of diseases as well. That's going to happen at the individual level. It's going to happen for groups of individuals within a population. And I anticipate that we're actually going to be seeing a better ability to make population health statements. Uh, there actually is the very real possibility that we're going to see new and much more refined classifications of disease. Uh, so everybody's going to want to think about how are we going to predict things uh, with respect to who's going to actually develop disease and the response to specific treatments. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the uh, models that are being developed uh, for answering those questions going forward? The great thing about the ability of uh, to collect and put together all of this information across these different scenarios is nearly every field has a set of investigators who are recognizing the potential of this new era so that uh, no matter what disease area we're talking about, there are people who are trying to pull together large amounts of information across uh, multiple sites, across uh, multiple different platforms to bring the data in, and then try to build these models to address the, the relevant clinical questions that are in that, that area. The amazing thing and the really fun part about doing these sorts of analyses is that the techniques that are being developed in one area can very often be applied to other disease areas so that there can be a lot more cross-pollination of ideas to kind of understand if something is leading to uh, a good model in one disease area, it might be applicable to another disease area by just changing up certain things that are being measured or how things are being analyzed. So that it really is kind of a really neat time where we can uh, not just build models, but we can cross-pollinate and understand what can be used in certain areas that could then be applied to other areas. 
So the logical extension of what we've been discussing is that we can be much more refined, we can be much more precise in how we think about an individual's biology, health, and disease. And in fact, that's the, the name for this new era that is being used, precision medicine. So let's, let's talk about that. And there was another term that was used previously, and that term was personalized medicine. The preferred term is now precision medicine, and let me just explain why. There was a committee that was commissioned uh, through what previously was called the Institute of Medicine. It's now referred to as the National Academy of Medicine. And they wrote a report, and they said that personalized medicine, and I'm quoting from their report, refers to the tailoring of medical treatment to the individual characteristics of each patient. It does not literally mean the creation of drugs or medical devices that are unique to a patient, but rather the ability to classify individuals into subpopulations that differ in their susceptibility to a particular disease or their response to a specific treatment. Preventive or therapeutic interventions can then be concentrated on those who will benefit, sparing expense and side effects for those who will not. Now, in the past, some of the advertising surrounding this personalized medicine approach almost hyped it too much. And there were advertisements that we saw that had a picture of a pill that said, your name here. And that's just simply misleading. And uh, it overhypes the situation. And for this reason, the committee writing this report said that precision medicine is the preferable term to personalized medicine to convey the meaning that I just described. So let's, let's take an example of a very common problem, high blood pressure, hypertension. This is a very common risk factor for the development of heart disease and stroke. It's estimated to affect one out of every three adults in the United States. And before we go further, uh, about hypertension in the precision medicine era, let's just take a moment and think about how we learned that hypertension is a risk factor. That came from the classical epidemiologic studies from an ongoing study called the Framingham Heart Study. So how did the biostatistical and epidemiologic evidence get assembled to say high blood pressure is a bad thing? It puts you at risk for heart disease or stroke. So the interesting thing about some of the, the studies that have now been utilized to develop a lot of the information that we have for prediction is the amount of follow-up that was required and the amount of effort that was required to put these data sets together to allow one to answer these scientific questions. So first of all, one should marvel at the idea that we have such long-term follow-up on people in the Framingham study, which has been following people for 50 years. And in order to be able to answer certain types of questions, you can't beat time, where time provides you the ability to understand what it is that can happen over the longer period. And then once we have that time, we are then able to try to assess what is going to be predictive of those longer-term outcomes. And a lot of times when you have a great study design, and this comes up in this big data idea where we can make sure we're utilizing the available information to get to that great study design. And if we have that great study design, then a lot of times the analytic techniques can answer the really important scientific questions. And a lot of those analytic techniques that have been developed and then extended to allow one 
to figure out where they want to go for other type questions have been initially applied to the Framingham study, where people built prediction models using various different types of regression so that people can identify which risk factors and how those risk factors interrelate with one another to see about the development of these various different diseases such as stroke and heart disease. So let's take stock of where we are. We know that hypertension is an important risk factor, affects one-third of the adults in the United States, but only about half the people with high blood pressure actually have it controlled. So let's take an example of a generic male, let's call him Bob, generic female, let's call her Jane, and they both have high blood pressure. And we've been treating them with the same approach over the last 40 years, but we know that the factors that control whether they develop high blood pressure and how they will respond to treatment include things like their genetic makeup, the environment, the place where they live, and how their genes interact with that environment, social determinants of health, and of course, personal motivations and behaviors. We can now collect data on all of these factors and that, of course, brings us to the big data that you mentioned. Talk a little bit about big data. What are its characteristics and uh, how are computational scientists thinking about handling it? So as we moved into this new era, it, the ability to collect and store information on a large number of features, on a large number of people at a depending upon what you're, what you're studying, short time intervals, allow there to be a large amount of information so we have a huge volume. We can collect the data quickly so we have a lot of velocity. We have an extraordinary amount of variability from subject to subject in terms of what we're getting. And we can have variation from person to person in terms of what, in terms of what we're seeing. So this is called the, the big Vs of big data. And what this allows one to understand is there's an a unique opportunity to utilize this information to allow ourselves to answer potentially interesting scientific questions. But a key idea that we must always keep in the back of our mind is that the data that we're using is only good if we can be confident in its veracity. Because if it turns out that we don't have good data, then we can't answer interesting scientific questions. So this idea of big data has some promise for being something that's really potentially very useful for our ability to answer medical questions. But we must be careful, one, because you brought up this really important concept of we don't want to overpromise about what we're going to be able to have. But I think that that's really important to understand that big data means we have a lot of information. A lot of information allows us to potentially answer great scientific questions as long as we are careful about what we're doing, understand what it is the scientific question we're trying to address is, and make sure we have the right and good information to allow ourselves to do it. All right. So how are investigators now trying to improve uh, the way we care for Bob and Jane in our example uh, from a few moments ago as we go forward? So, of course, there are new types of studies. They utilize the digital technologies that are available, and some of these have been referred to as the modern-day digital version of the Framingham Heart Study. I'm going to just cite two examples. One of these is supported by the federal government, and it is called the All of Us Research Program. And the goal there is to enroll one million individuals uh, to study health and disease 
And this is a very different type of study than individuals may have been involved in in the past, where they're actually doing this whole thing over the internet. So individuals are approached through a platform uh, that's available on the internet. They may be recruited at medical centers around the country, but they're not actually meeting the researchers who developed uh, the All of Us research program. Uh, but they will be contributing their data, their answers to surveys. They may also contribute biospecimens if they wish to, uh, so that their genetic information can be linked up uh, with their clinical information. The Veterans Administration Program is actually doing something very similar. It's called the Million Veterans Program. And they are using a combination of old-style mailing surveys to veterans as well as some of the electronic techniques that I've talked about. Now, this has profound implications for the way we do research, the way we interface with participants. So let's talk a little bit about some of those, confidentiality, privacy. What, what are the discussions that are taking place right now? So I think the, the big thing that you, that you bring up when you think about millions of people. So first of all, that just blows my mind to even think about collecting or doing any type of analysis on a million people. And one thing to understand that's, uh, I think, an important concept is why do we even want a million people? Well, when you have a huge amount of people, you're going to be able to identify things that are rare that you would not get to see in small numbers and things that are smaller effects you're going to be able to find while if you have a smaller data set, you're only going to be able to find bigger effects. So that this idea of having millions of people allows us to potentially find things that were not possible in the traditional study. The downside of having millions of people is that you then have to make sure you're figuring out how to keep this privacy, confidentiality, ideas there, even though people are participating from a long distance away and you potentially don't have great contact with them. So it's critically important to make sure you're able to take this huge amount of information, store it confidentially to make sure that you are going to not harm the people who are graciously and wonderfully contributing their information to these studies. And then you have to work very hard to make sure you can sort the information to be able to address the questions that you might have. The big concept that we always want to keep in mind is big doesn't necessarily mean better if we haven't dealt with the problems we talked about before. Namely, how are we going to take that information, turn it into something usable? How are we going to identify the clinical questions that are most relevant? And then how are we going to use the data that we have, that we've stored well, that we maintain privacy and confidentiality to address those questions appropriately? It's a really exciting time to potentially answer a lot of things because the idea of these sorts of data sets just simply didn't exist five, ten years ago. So uh, the... the Teams of individuals participating in Harvard Catalyst, our clinical and translational science center here at Harvard, have been thinking about precision medicine and big data uh, very actively. And let's think about some of the things we're doing to prepare our clinical translational investigators in our community. It's important to know that many of our faculty at Harvard Catalyst are actually participating in precision medicine and big data projects right now, and more will be participating in the future. And simply because of that, the trainees and the investigators in our community are exposed to precision medicine in a way that, that might not be possible for them if they were at a, a different program. 
It is very important to train individuals in these new computational methods, the ethics of this new type of research. So we do have courses. Some of them are face-to-face -face courses, the traditional kind, and some of them are online and flipped classrooms. And I know you've been taking a lead role in some of those online courses. We also provide resources for our investigators. Can you talk a little bit about the biostatistical consultations and some of the computational resources that might be available to the CT investigators here? Yeah, so it, given that it is a unique time and given that the speed at which the field of biostatistics is growing is quite tremendous. And I, who do this as my full-time job, often feel overwhelmed with all of the new things that I feel like I need to learn and keep up on. The idea that somebody can just pop in and not know very much and can feel that they are able to take advantage of all the um, tools that are available is simply probably not true. That doesn't mean that you can't get this training. You can't allow yourself to understand and get access to First, a lower level understanding of what's there and then slowly working your way up to more complex understanding. The one thing that's wonderful about this time as well is that in your field, there's probably going to be a subset of techniques that are used more often. So what you can do is you can allow yourself to understand the broadness of biostatistics or machine learning or computer science or whatever it might be then move along into a more specific part that's going to be applicable to your field. And then the one thing that's always a, a nice backup is that Harvard Catalyst does provide access to biostatistics consultations so that if you have a specific question about the software or about something related to your project, you have the access to kind of somebody who will be willing to meet with you and help you about with your project. Because the big idea is that you never want to feel as though you are on your own because science moves too quickly to be all by yourself. So you have to understand that there's a lot of people out there who are there to help you to move forward in your career. So a few final thoughts as uh, we complete our discussion about this pivotal moment in biomedical research. Uh, I'm particularly impressed with the implications for the cost of the new uh, diagnostic and therapeutic modalities that we'll be talking about. It's a little hard to predict whether or not we're going to actually be saving money or spending more money. It's certainly going to take a lot of money to actually get to all this refinement in our ability to diagnose disease and predict who is going to receive a treatment. But on the other hand, we would not be treating people who are not as likely to respond. So in some instances, I can see where we'd actually be cost savings. But at least in the beginning, uh, this is going to be more expensive and our society is going to have to think about how we're going to deal with that. One of the thought that I've had uh, is that none of this really does any good for what we are really talking about, which is to improve human health, if we can't actually translate the new findings into day-to-day -day practice by healthcare professionals. This is a whole new field that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about. It's called implementation science. And probably at another time, we uh, ought to have a discussion about implementation science. So for me, cost and implementation of what we find are two very important things that we need to keep in mind as we talk about a precision medicine era. What are your thoughts? I think the, the big thing that everybody should understand is we are really kind of in a unique, uh, fun time in terms of research because there is such a growth area in all fields 
if you're interested in treatment, if you're interested in gender differences, if you're interested in genetics, if you're interested in environmental exposures, the ability to collect all these varied types of information are going to allow you to find something that you're interested in that's going to be probably uniquely able to be answered given the new information techniques and uh, quality that we have nowadays. Ryan, thank you very much. As always, it's been a great pleasure chatting with you as we talk about how we're going to be pushing the envelope as we explore this pivotal moment in biomedical research. Thank you for having me. Think Research is going on winter break and replaying our very first episode. Next time on Think Research, find out how tainted hay led to the creation of one of the safest and most effective medications in the world, warfarin. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.